Well, I'm delighted to have with me today Tommy Tiptajaya from Green Hope. Uh, I hope I got your name right, Tommy. Yeah, you got it right, Rafael. Well done. <laughs> I was practicing, <laughs> if I'm honest. And Green Hope's an amazing company. And I, I really want to dig into a couple of areas that, that you guys have been doing some fascinating work. And you're, you're all about the problem of, of plastic waste, correct? Yes, and then some. I can explain a little bit more uh, later. But yes, we're primarily starting with, uh, with the mission of tackling the plastic waste pollution, because that's how uh, the skill sets that we have to start with. So that's what people can look forward to. Um, but first, let's find out a little bit about yourself. I know you went to the US and, and Europe and, and studied your MBA at, at Chicago Booth. What inspired you to you know, head back to Indonesia to take on this big challenge? Yes, Rafael, thank you. Um, yeah, I was born and raised in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia from a middle class background. And then uh, we were fortunate enough, I was blessed that uh, my mother was able to send me to uh, go to school abroad. So I went to Texas, UT Austin, uh, had such a good time uh, studying there, learning a whole tons of really good practice, right, um, from a more mature societies and a more advanced economies. And then I uh, went on and worked for an engineering company, really building uh, the their infrastructure, IT infrastructure for them for a while in their US and then the factories, various factories in Europe, uh, in UK, and as well as in Hungary. After that, I took uh, MBA with the University of Chicago with the, with the intent of, I always am curious about heading back to Indonesia because I always felt like this is where the exciting opportunities. I know the language. I'm from there. I I uh, like the food, the rendang and nasi goreng and stuff. You all have to try it. All the spices are awesome from this region of the world. The diversity is amazing. And Indonesia, uh, out of the 800 million or so population, Indonesia is uh, 40%, more than 40% of it, uh, 270 to 280 million. So it's a, lot, a big country with amazing potential. So naturally, I felt like I can bring a lot of the good things that I learned from US and Europe to go back to Indonesia and participate in the growth trajectory of the, the country and the people and the culture. Uh, we have 17,000 islands, by the way. I, I don't know if you have tried to uh, count it, Rafael. I never tried that. <laughs> The, depending on the, the water level, maybe uh, sometimes be, uh, hovering between 14,000 and 17,000. It's an amazing country with so diverse culture. And if you take Indonesia as a base and you expand to the ASEAN, it's just a, a gorgeous region and with great people and great food and opportunities. People want to grow here. People have big aspirations here. It's it, You can't understate it enough for, for global listeners because, as you said, over 270 million people and growing and the openness and friendly and welcoming qualities of, of those of, of those people is also amazing. So I, I always love to go to Indonesia and you have incredible natural capital as well. Of course, you've got uh, rainforests and Indonesia is super interesting, particularly because of the fact that they're moving their capital this decade, I believe. Yeah. And additionally, if I may say, I came home to Indonesia in 2007. Yeah, I became a consultant with the Boston Consulting Group for ASEAN countries. I consult for clients across the ASEAN and even included India at that time. But, you know, 
ASEAN countries sometimes uh, live and die by their political stability, uh, yeah. the leaders and everything. I think Singapore is an exception, but the rest of the other countries are really, uh, depending on whether the season you get a, a strong political leadership that is good. And I would say the last uh, 10 years, Indonesia has, has been led quite good with the current president. And he really have done a lot, laid the basic frameworks, infrastructure, reforms, and, and uh, more certainty of law and bringing more foreign investments and openness of the country. And I think that that makes tons of a difference uh, in positioning the country uh, very, very well to the future. Completely. And so does, of course, private enterprises as well. So so how did you get going with Green Hope? Uh, how did that start? Uh, yeah, so I was uh, I was a consultant for a while, but I know that uh, I always have this itch to really start a business that have more direct positive and social impact uh, to the society. I always believe that the, the business of the future that, who, that can resonate with uh, new breed of consumers, uh, new uh, governments, as well as the all the B two B partners are the business who are really purpose driven business, right? That has a bigger uh, aspiration than just merely. Making Making financial returns. Financial returns is a strict, uh, is a good discipline and indicator of value creation. But the real value that we create is when we actually uh, bring in products and services that makes a society better or the environment better. Green Hope is a manifestation of that aspiration because I know a partner of mine, uh, long term, long term time friends. He came from 40 years of plastic industry. He grew up in a family business of uh, actually serving the top FMCG brand with their packaging. So we connected very well. He's the scientist. He researched 10 years of research, seven years of patent process. He told me, look, uh, Tommy, let's do this together because I want to redeem my 40 years worth of sins through the family business. So I was like, okay, that, that's pretty a uh, good aspiration. Yeah, uh, maybe my sins in polluting not as long, but definitely I'm a polluter too. Uh, it's uh, And as I studied more about the space and about the urgency of it, and it's, it's very clear that it's an urgent matter that needs to be resolved. And to a certain degree, it's an existential uh, problem that we need to overcome together sooner than later. Massively. And and you know to the point we're all polluters and i think that's the bit that boils everyone's blood is that we're consuming products or we're or we're buying products and and we're you know being diligent we think in disposing of of them in the correct way but the system lets us down that's that's how it how it can feel sometimes because you only need to dip into the waters in bali or wherever and you're going to find ocean plastic and and i think we all know that something's got to give right something's got to change and we yeah. we're just not seeing we're just not seeing the change if anything, it's 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 going in the wrong direction currently. Yeah, and we have to understand in the space of waste, right? It used to be back then, we, uh, before plastics, uh, everybody consume every package organic stuff. So it's not mm. so big of a challenge to manage that organic waste in a way because they will biodegrade and everything. Uh, when plastic was introduced, is actually meant to be a green material to reduce our dependency on cutting forests to turn this into paper and all the other uh, labor and also carbon intensive production like glass and 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 aluminum and and steel and stuff mm -hmm. plastic is so lightweight and the entire life cycle of plastic was good carbon footprint wise but then when it becomes waste it's such a challenge the same strength that the plastic has becomes such a double-edged sword because it's very hard to to biodegrade it will take 100 years uh, maybe and most of those years will be in the form of microplastics and each of us inadvertently through our water 
food, seafood we eat, we all like seafood, right? <laughs> Living in this in this region already has microplastics in it. So uh, the World Economic Forum report shows that uh, you and I already eating uh, a credit cards cumulatively a credit cards worth of plastics a week. That's 10 to 15 gram of microplastics. And think about what it does to our bodies, right? And we already go to the doctor saying that, look, doctor, we have this then that issues. And the doctor will say, it's autoimmune disease, your immune system attacking your own body. And we got puzzled, why? And doctor also says sometimes hormonal imbalance. So your body uh, regulatory systems and hormones got out of whack. The question is why? So the question is really because we are polluted. Our body as a system is polluted from air, from water and the food we eat. And plastic increasingly plays more and more part of that. So when I mentioned about existential crisis, it, it really is to our existence. It's much more direct, much more urgent in a way compared to, to climate. Both are really, really tough issues and important issues to solve. But plastic is like you can vividly see it in the in our bodies. Yeah, I, I, I read somewhere that, that we've, there's even been studies of um, microplastics or, or their chemicals in the human fetus. So we probably uh, don't know yeah. what the effect is going to be over multiple generations, but we do know I, uh, that we do have to do something about it. So it's kind of a charged debate or discussion. There's proponents who are very strong on recycling and others who are, you know, very anti-plastic. Um, as you pointed out, it's actually a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant invention is just kind of it just shouldn't be end up in landfill right what's what's your take on on this and and what what was the direction that you took with uh, your your scientific partner initially to to address this in indonesia yeah so plastic shouldn't end up in nature if i may uh correct you a little bit there uh leakage right yeah. and in terms of the end of life processing some people process it through incinerator or landfill and so forth those are all valid valid options when we started to embark on this. My uh, partner comes from, he used to be a researcher in a, one of the top uh, US companies, uh, R&D engineer. So when he came home, he really started the charge of upgrading to a better behaving, what we call better behaving materials. So we try many different locally sourced uh, materials that will be greener from carbon footprint, as well as at the end of life will be much easier to biodegrade, whether in landfill situation or in if accidentally leak to nature. So that, that is the aspiration from environmental perspective. Uh, but the other aspiration is from cost perspective. It has to uh, eventually go to cost parity to conventional, and that is challenging. And the other part is the functionality. The functionality needs to be uh, strong, needs to be good, flexible, good oxygen barrier, all the, the reasons why we use plastics in the first place. Now we come from a better, uh, material upgrade perspective. That approach is not the only solution. Uh, this is a piece of the puzzle. I think when we look into tackling this plastic waste pollution, we have to recognize that, first of all, this is a systemic problem. You can have the innovation as you want, but if there's no behavior change, no social innovation side, uh, you won't realize the impact that you want. So first of all, the, the thing that is important, and this is where a lot of people get wrong, I, I learned from my architect friend, actually, is from uh, Italy. He, he said these terms that I love so much, that which is less ego, more ego. Less ego, more ego. So first of all, we have to recognize that it, it's there's no one solution fits all. It's crazy to think that we can solve these massive 
humongous problem that has so many different plastic types littered in different geography types. 17,000 islands compared to large swath of geography, uh, advanced economy versus poor econ poorer economy, uh, GDP per capita 60,000 versus 3,800 with all the, uh, the, the implication of the different lifestyle, different packaging types and stuff. Crazy to think that there's only one solution. <laughs> the, the, one solution the one solution when you move to transplant it towards different geography and economy, the economic viability of that solution would change significantly, mm -hmm. right? So our finding so far, at least on the ASEAN region, is that it's a growing region. Our GDP per capita, at least in Indonesia, is close, close getting close to 4,000, but it's a far cry from a typical European country or a US with 55,000 or 60,000, 65,000 US dollar, right? Mm -hmm. So the kind of packaging they can afford with their weekly wages, daily wages is different. So we always say that, look, the solution is, first of all, yes, we always need to improve waste management service, plug the leak, so to speak. We all need to work together for that. There's no single entity, even government will be too small. Uh, the budget won't be enough if we don't all work together. So improve the waste management through technologies, through collect better collection, behavior change, and so forth. And then reduce the, uh, the first R is reduce. Reduce the usage where we can and don't double back, don't hoard these, these packaging and stuff. And then we reuse, right? Uh, bring in your water bottle, uh, Raphael, bring in your own bag if you shop and everything. But then when we sit, talk about uh, global trade, export, import, mm -hmm. protection from uh, 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 rain and everything, 17,000 island, distribution of fast-moving consumer goods, impossible to escape packaging. And when we talk about packaging, we need plastic or plastic-like material. Then the third R is we explore, is it economically viable to recycle? So what we found is that PET, is the most expensive, uh, one of the highest value plastics. PET bottles are uh, closest to be economically viable to recycle. Yeah. Then all the mineral water bottles, PET bottles, go ahead and go recycling. But then we find a lot of films or multi-layer packaging, uh, snack packaging, coffee, mm -hmm. sachet, and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, garbage bags yeah. full of garbage already. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be too cheap too dirty, too mixed up, too messed up, to to be collected and washed. You know, remember water is another scarce resource. Yeah. We can't do mechanical recycling for that. It's going to be too value destroying. So yeah. for those items is what we call in Green Hope, return to earth items. We need to just make them biodegradable. And don't worry of trying to save the material because you need to burn more cash, fungible cash, to try to save that little materials that is left. So if we make it biodegradable with a carbon footprint, good, better behaving carbon footprint also, therefore carbon offset, it will be a, a good economically viable solutions. So that's return to earth is Green Hope's piece of the puzzle contribution to the system-wide problem. Yeah. The fourth R, if you like, we, we all know reduce, reuse, recycle, but you're you're saying return to earth is actually the, the, the fourth R. And that's where you've been putting your energy on, on that piece of the puzzle, it sounds like. I think people can check out your TEDx because you did a talk where you bring up Less Ego, More Eco. And the, the title uh, surprised me because it's it's why tech innovation is not enough to beat plastic pollution. And you're you're working on a tech innovation business. So <laughs> it's good to see that you're, you're thinking holistically. Obviously, you believe you guys are a part of the puzzle, but you're right. It's such a it is a complex systemic issue. Are, are we seeing appetite from traditional FMCG companies and things to adopt these technologies? Are, are, are you getting interest for for your solutions? We are. We are seeing appetite, and we're very uh, glad with the trend, especially the last 
couple of years, yeah, three years, and and COVID didn't didn't make it uh, the, this appetite to go away actually because they realized this is a, a serious problem that's gonna bite back uh, them back in the end because all these plastic waste, some of them carry their brands right into the oceans, of into course, the rivers, yeah, everywhere. So yeah, it's true also that those packaging, it's not necessarily their doing, you know, to cause it over there, but it does carry their brand. It does imply that we all need to take responsibility in working together in finding better behaving material in make sure improving the social innovation side, the waste collection, the behavior modification side and everything. So that at the end of it, people need to realize the negative externalities of this problem is so serious and how we can internalize that negative externality into our uh, value chain uh, post-production into the waste management and post-consumer and all that stuff, right? So that there won't be any negative uh, externality costs anymore, but we all need to work together to internalize that into the system. That's what we need to do and we need to think about it. If we don't what people need to realize, and this is important for the government, and they do increasingly, uh, they are increasingly realizing that is the cost of not doing that is actually can be fatal and can be threatening to legitimacy of the government as well. Imagine, for instance, a beach in, in Bali. If it got polluted, a washed uh, plastic from the ocean once every month, then suddenly once every week, mm. suddenly once every two days, the livelihood of the local people completely wiped out, right? Yeah. And, and that is increasingly a uh, not far-fetched scenario. It's not a scare thing. It's really happening today. So the government uh, is is really also stepping up to really work on this. Uh, so the challenge is really how to each of us together can sit down and draft a proper roadmap where we each of us find our roles in it instead of negating uh, each other's solution and say that our solution is the best, everybody else is greenwashing and everything. That, that approach is just not productive at all and we should we should uh, stop that it's uh, uh if you are doing noodles uh, business and people are comparing between noodles yeah you can say your noodles is superior but this is like systemic problem that where uh, there's apple orange uh, uh bananas and all kinds of different things uh, yeah. that you can't necessarily compare and always say that yours is superior yeah completely and and you're at the sharp end really in indonesia because i think this is a global problem and 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 since china stopped when was that? 2018, maybe? Stopped allowing the import of difficult to recycle plastics from the West and other places. I know that Indonesia has had a heck of a lot of imported waste along with their own waste, of course, to deal with. Why do you think that is? Well, this is some some um, misunderstanding. It's very common. People only know half of the story or half truth. Right? This is some common misunderstanding if people say that, look, for instance, uh, circular economy. And uh, people just simplistically sometimes say, okay, circular economy means recycling at all costs, and even mechanical recycling. It's not. It's the whole thing. It's it's even the, the more renewable materials. It's actually the uh, re- uh, reusable model and also recycling. A lot of those export of plastic waste were under the, 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 the solution set of recycling. And what people is saying is saying that, look, uh, there's probably a parity and efficiency of labor or, or wage uneconomical plastic waste or plastic waste that are not economical to be processed or recycled in developed countries will be economical to be recycled in developing countries. To me, that, that is a social justice problem, you know, it's, it's, uh, and they always say, look, it's a, it's a too valuable to, uh, to be wasted. 
so we give it to you. Uh, no, if it's too valuable, uh, if it's a treasure, if it's not a waste, you can recycle it yourself in your country. My view is I'm against that. I think each country needs to uh, solve uh, and recycle their own waste and circularize it themselves. Why? Because recycling requires water washing, washing of the water. And a lot of developing developing countries, the reason that it's cheaper and parity is because the livelihood of our waste pickers are still substandard. Yeah. It's yeah. it's terrible. Some of their, their stuff. They 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 stand uh they step on glasses and inhale methane pretty much every day. Yeah. This is not exaggeration. Uh in the landfills, right? Open dumping landfill. That's the sole reason. And you can't you can't uh take advantage of that and and because the problem is when we advance, where do we dump our waste? Do we dump to all the other less developed economies? That is not uh, solving the problem, right? The the way to solve the problem is to really understand what is the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is if a certain solution against certain packaging material is not economically viable. In other words, you need to spend $1 to try to wash, chop, collect, separate, uh, put it and turn it into recycled resins uh, through mechanical recycling. But it's only worth $0.05 cents on the other end. The $0.95 cents, that gap is that, one, who's going to subsidize it? If you try to do that by dumping to other countries, that, that is not viable. And two, I would ask, is that circular economy to burn $0.95 cents worth of fungible cash to save $0.05 cents worth of materials? <laughs> that is the, the source, the core of the problem. That's the economic uh, challenge. So it's it's not right. La. I think that's why China, when they passed that law they they say it's a green sword policy you know green yeah sword. green sword <laughs> <laughs> right because they realize look the, these activities yes it it makes some uh some entrepreneurs and green entrepreneurs recycle entrepreneurs very well off but then i have increased number of waste pickers that's probably not the the national development path that we want and we have use of massive amount of water and soil and everything that got contaminated from the, contaminated from the post processing that there's no water post processing on some of the processes so that that is uh, they realize that so they've said that the cost to the country is too great uh, to really wash other people's uh, waste so when they realize that it's uh, uh, we all need to to tackle our own waste and and yeah we need to do it together in a sense that collaboratively learn about the best practice about technologies and so forth but don't export and import of plastic waste. And I believe the global forums are are dealing with it and try, uh, trying to restrict that. Yeah. yeah, there seems to be progress being made, actually, is, uh, even this year. And, and I think by 2023 or maybe 24, maybe the end of 23, they need to really flesh out those plans because was it about 170-odd countries, I think, signed up to Global Plastic Waste Treaty? So it will be interesting to see. Of course, the, the issue lies in actually policing and making this stuff really happen because um, it's there's a lot of stuff that goes on uh, of course that that is borderline probably not playing by the rules but such is the world we live in but I really want to dig into you've got a couple of solutions and they're slightly different so which one came first let me let me before before we talk about the the solution if I can just just to final uh, some last comments on that topic is that yeah all those 180 countries and so forth uh, hopefully we will be able to wrap it up because otherwise what's happening is that the developing countries is effectively or even our waste pickers are effectively subsidizing the lifestyle of the the, the advanced uh, more advanced economies right and that is uh 
by washing the and recycling the the plastic waste. That's and so that true. is tough. And I think I've seen enough through the our participation in global forums in many different places that it's it's fair to say that there's no single country on the planet that has solved this plastic waste pollution problem holistically. Mm-hmm. Yes, a lot of the development developed economies are good role models in because they're successful in solving the plastic waste pollution on the front end, which is the collection, the separation, the picking up organic waste during certain dates and unorganic certain dates and no leakage to their rivers. It's the habit of the people to really don't not throwing waste anywhere uh, in in, in uh, where they don't belong. Those are all very successful and we need to continuously uh, uh, go towards that and imitate it. But the back end is always problematic. It, it is the challenge challenging part. Yes, some of them have higher recycling rate, but some of them incinerate, right? Incineration is not very popular in global form because yeah, carbon footprints and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then some of them also still export when they say, okay, zero waste to landfill, zero waste to landfill ideology. But so long they still have the anachronical plastic waste they, they use, they still export everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so they dump other people's landfill while claiming zero waste to landfill. So I guess what I'm saying is that no single country has solved it holistically. The back end is challenging. So we start with that humble acknowledgement so that we can jointly try to develop uh, or, or discover the solutions together. Coming into your uh, question about our solution, yes, we we have few technologies because how we see ourselves is a green technology social enterprise. So we have a big uh, innovation team led by my partner. He's the chief innovation officer, uh, Pasugi Antotandio, and his team has got at least two or three uh, PhDs and some of them are uh, uh, biodegradable, holder of biodegradable patents. Uh, some are Japanese uh, graduates, uh, graduate from top university in Japan and so forth. So we always try to look from the technology set uh, perspective holistically. What technology is suitable for low-income segment that has very demanding cost uh, targets? Which technology actually for middle and upper income segments? And which technology has uh, less functional properties, but uh, but they have better greener, uh, green credential or environmental effectiveness? So how we see it is that it's always this trifecta of trade-offs. Raphael, if somebody tell you that there's no trade-off in the material world, that, that is marketing speak, right? <laughs> <laughs> the trade-off is really between cost, functional properties that are required or uh, demanded or what we want. And third is the environmental effectiveness. And when we define, okay, cost is pretty straightforward, right? Uh, how much more expensive than conventional plastics? Uh, yeah. Functional property, you know, how is it related to conventional plastic because that's what people are using today and, and everything that's what they have in their mind. Third is the environmental effectiveness. This is what's tricky, what people need to think because it depends on where is your assumed uh, waste be, uh, disposal, right? If you throw yeah. it in a 17,000 island environment of Indonesia, it's very different than if you throw it in, in the CBD in Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, right? Uh, waste collection system, separation system, uh, the journey towards re- nearest recycling center, the economic viability of the recycle or incineration is very different in ASEAN compared to Europe and so forth. So because of that, our three technologies, we have three right now today. So we have what we call uh, a bioplastics. So bioplastic is we search for what are the viable locally sourced biosource materials. And ours is a starch base that we identified, tapioca, cassava, mm-hmm. is one of the ASEAN's most abundant crops. And this is economically viable, it's scalable, it's got high starch content and low nutritious 
value. So be careful all this uh, cassava or tapioca, or we call it singkong in Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, some, yeah. if they are made into chips, they taste very, yeah. very good. Yeah. But it's everything. <laughs> everything fried tastes good. That's 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 the answer to that one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. But it got such a, this one is unique because it's got such a high starch content. It's very dense in carbs yeah. and, and yeah. low nutritional value. So what that means is that compared to rice, to corn, to potato, to sugar, to all our other abundantly available crops in Indonesia, it's not main food staple. That is important point because uh, we need to find stuff that are not competing with food. And this tapioca starch, even we can source from, we call it uh, singkong racun, which is like a poisonous kind that people can't eat. We can starch it, uh, source it from there and make it into a viable biosource with less carbon, turn it into bioresins, and we we can turn it into shopping bags, the most common, or uh, mulch films, uh, seedling bags to, to plant, so you don't need to take it out again before planting. Uh, you, it can plant and protect the roots and biodegrade automatically after three months, uh, within three months. And then we can turn it into rigid films as well, uh, or, uh, not films, rigid uh, car parts, uh, many, many different downstream applications. So that is our EcoPlus and NatureLoop, two of our technologies. These two technologies are designed with different end, in, end of life in mind. So EcoPlus is designed as a bio-based material to biodegrade in landfill situation. Our landfill in Indonesia is active landfill, which is cooking uh, and, and have heat and oxygen and and everything so it will biodegrade in that situation and if it accidentally leaks to the ocean it will also or or soil it will also biodegrade uh very fast that's eco plus nature loop is basically what uh we call the european or us grade or japan it's uh what we call home compostable and commercial compostable bio-based materials uh starch based so nature loop is similar with eco plus except it's uh home compostable and commercial compostable uh, certified uh it, it's very important to always think about the end of life right Uh, where it's going to be littered or if accidentally littered or where it's going to be managed as the end of life so those are our bio-based technologies the downstream application can vary as i already mentioned the next technology is what we call a commonly known as oxobiodegradable technologies. This is our own in-house development. All technologies in-house development already certified and, and tested and patented in US, Singapore, and Indonesia. So this uh, third technology is it's called Oxium. And what it does is from naturally available mineral salts, we actually add it or substitute about 3% to 5% of the regular conventional plastic during production stage. What it does is it's spread out into the entire plastic polymer chain. And when it's it doesn't change the property of the plastic, it's very cost competitive. But when it's thrown out and exposed to sun, heat, moisture that is widely available all year round in our part of the country, it will rapidly cut off the polymer chains of the plastics. So it creates chemical and molecular level uh, scission. Why is that cutting off important? Because when you cut off this polyethylene chain into all the monomers to simpler, simpler form, then the microbes and water and fungi can come in and start biodegrading it. What we do through this Oxim technology is we're not magician. We can't, uh, for instance, biodegrade steel for instance, but we can buy, we can speed up the oxidation and biodegradation of 
conventional plastics through this additive because that's what nature is able to do, except nature does it over the course of 100 years with a long time of microplastic stage. But we speed it up into two years or sometimes less than that, depending on where the end of life is, that it will biodegrade all the way into H2O, CO2, and biomass. So those are our three technologies. That's a mouthful there. <laughs> Hopefully it's clear. The application is very from rigid to film to sachet to packaging, multi-layer and everything. Think of us as we are your ready, willing, able technology partners to really help you to go green. That That's our simple pitch like generally to brands, to our partners. We are your ready, willing, able development partners, technology partners. Love it. The They're slightly different solutions, right? Because one of them is trying to use natural products or, or crops, essentially, that, that are abundant in Indonesia. Uh, you do see cassava everywhere, I think, and uh, and use that as a, as a replacement, a bioplastic. So those plastic bags are pretty incredible. Um, I've seen them. They, I mean, I've never tried to, to compost one. How, how long does it take in it for, the, for a bag to kind of dissolve um, or, or kind of break down? It, it, I assume it's, it's much quicker than plastic, of course. Yeah, yeah, it, it will decompose depending on where you you put it away if it's like in a in a in a stable office this important point here if in stable office with no uh microbes no water no fungi no humidity and very dry and everything it will largely be a little bit stable it will biodegrade faster than conventional plastic conventional plastic will probably stay there almost uh, forever but then ours if you put it away in soil for instance our seedling bags within less than three months they're gone the, the reason we know is when we help the the president's team to clean up the Chitarum River they do planting they do like millions of seedling bags planting and they use our seedling bags they plant it in very difficult terrain and when they plant it they plant the entire thing not only the coffee seeds and uh, but also the seedling bag along with it and then two years later we just received reports end of last year we did this project about three years uh, right before COVID end of last year they reported Mr. Tommy coordinates by coordinates we estimate more than 90% success rate uh, uh, than typical 70% because when you're about to plant generally they when you take out that seedling bag you disrupt the seeds and disrupt the roots and stress the plants the yeah. seeds so when you can't plant the entire thing but you don't need to take away the plastic later but the plastic also will biodegrade the bioplastic it will yeah. biodegrade safely to return to earth uh, not preventing the roots from growing and everything then it will increase the survival rate of the seeds so that's what happens so we're very happy about that so it will range bio bioplastic typically the standards is that you need to uh, it will need to biodegrade within three months and then uh, for us some of it if it's in the landfill and everything maybe within three months to a year and that is good enough and this is sometimes what the activists, uh, you know, we understand their hearts, their idealism. I fully appreciate that. But sometimes they don't understand the business or industry requirements. Mr. Tommy, we want this to, when you throw it away, immediately, 24 hours, biodegrade safely to <laughs> the planet. During use, we want the oxygen barrier as good, waterproof, and all that stuff. That's like, whoa, that's a design paradox there. Very difficult. Uh, however, I would posit that if we claim three months, but it biodegrades in six months or one year, it's still so much better compared to 100 years. And, and what, goes, we... what goes back into the environment? Obviously, I mean, there must be some pretty clever stuff, chemicals, etc., to, to make a, a, a root vegetable, essentially, or, or plant have plastic-like capabilities. I mean, they are just exactly like a plastic bag. Is there is there contents that aren't 
that great for nature like how 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 can it be i guess it's it's a heck of a lot better but there's no such thing as a perfect solution but well, yeah. what is the outcome of of a plastic bag that made out of cassava rather than uh, fossil fuels yeah rafael you 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 ask a very good questions uh in the market today there's no such thing as a hundred percent cassava or whatever there are marketers who say that but that's not true because you're exactly right you need something what we call uh, can turns into a plastic a plastic like material plasticizer you know so there's a some some uh, mixture of ingredient uh, a different between uh, some ingredients and processes techniques that is required to a longer process than regular conventional plastics creation for instance and what we need to make sure is some of these uh, just like the the print right the print can be uh, organic based uh, ink or the conventional ones. Of course, if we still use the conventional ones, when it biodegrades the entire thing, it's not entirely foolproof, 100% biomaterial, 100% cassava, 100% uh, seaweed, 100% whatever. It needs to be, as you rightly mentioned, some other materials that makes it uh, to have the functionality or the properties. Uh, we call it plasticizer, for instance. Now, these plasticizers can come from a synthetic material or from glycerin, from many different uh, items, typically that's what translates to a more expensive stuff. So what we need to do is make sure that it will biodegrade fully into H2O, CO2, and biomass. And the, what is this biomass? Uh, this biomass needs to be safe to the environment. And if there's like a trace level that is very, very minor trace level, there could be but it's, as you mentioned, there's no perfect material, 100% material. If any, that's why we need to prevent the leakage at the same time. But it's a trace level such that it's entirely safe. Because anything we eat, even your food, right, it's got trace level of uh, chemicals. If you if you think about it, and any snacks, anything, it's got that trace level. So the key is how to make sure that this biomass is safe. It doesn't impede plant growth. It doesn't ha exhibit any poison, toxic, and all that stuff. Uh, it doesn't make the worms die against the control uh, of full organic stuff. It's uh, for all practical purposes, it's almost the same as uh, the organic biomass. So that's the kind of, kind of rigor that needs to be exhibited at the tail end of it. We call it the ecotoxicity test. So the test is actually three level, the oxidation test, biodegradations test, and then after it biodegrades, what is this biomass, right? We know what CO2 is, we know what H2O is, but what about the biomass? Now we test the biomass entirely against the control. It's called ecotoxicity test. It has to pass all those things. And most of the standards today, like home compostable tests, commercial composter tests, uh, uh, and ox oxo biodegradable tests, those are already have the ecotoxicity at the tail end, which is very, very good. The other product you have, I'm in intrigued how it was received into the market because essentially Oxium is um, accelerating the breakdown of existing plastics to to make the process faster than it than it would normally happen, I guess, just um, in nature. That probably is slightly polarizing, right? Because you as plastics break down, you, you go through a microplastic phase, which is the bit I think that everyone's most concerned with um, as it ent you know, enters the food chain and, 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 and water and other places. How, how is that being received? And, and what were your thoughts on creating that product and, and the value that it brings? Super good question, Rafael. You're like the plastic expert now. Uh, that, that's like, wow, uh, you've done your research. It's uh, It can be polarizing for some of them are reasonable reasons. Some of them 
because of competitive reason and some of them because uh, some of the practices were not straightforward. So I'll explain on those three things. One is uh, for the right reason. For instance, this this technology is actually not very popular in some of the developed countries for the for the reasonable reasons, I would say. For instance, in Europe, uh, in many different parts of uh, Europe, they say, Mr. Tommy, uh, what you do if you upgrade conventional plastics, you will prolong the single-use lifestyle. Yeah, single-use plastic. We are a post-oil economy. Our energy is renewable, increasingly coming from renewable, maybe not today, uh, given the war, but the aspiration is going there. So Europe is all about uh, plastic, uh, fixing the plastic waste pollution from paradigm of reusable, where they can. Mm-hmm. And they can do it in, in a lot of the high-income country with 60,000 GDP per capita why reusable can do in high income countries because to do reusable to make it worthwhile and all the carbon footprint of coming back and forth and washing the container needs to be a certain bulk size yeah uh, your shampoo and your ice cream and so forth right it needs to be a certain bulk size whereas in Indonesia, if our GDP per capita is 3,400, you get weekly wages, daily wages. You can't mm-hmm. tie up your cash on yeah. bulk shampoo. Yeah. That's why it's pay-per-use. Uh, it, it's very different economy that drives different behavior and affordability for regular people. Which is now, why Europe, oh, sorry, which is why sachets are so so popular in in places like Indonesia and Philippines, etc. Yeah, yeah, particularly nasty because they kind of mixed kind of materials aren't they with aluminium and plastic involved and, and and pretty much worthless so so yeah that makes yeah. sense that makes yeah. sense exactly so in europe they would say we want to go reusable and we want to go recycle where we can and then we want to go to uh compostable bio-based compostable uh, so carbon uh, offset and renewable source so upgrading conventional plastic in a way that just prolong the single-use behavior. It's just not a path that they, they're interested in. That's one. And two is they, look, we are four-season countries, right? When this, this, yeah, we get it. You speed it up. It's two years rather than 100 years. That means that it's only endangering the environment if it's accidentally leaked for two years. Still not ideal, but yeah, better than 100 years. But during four-season countries with, uh, during winter, you know, only a couple of hours and sun uh, and everything in northern, even in northern Scandinavian countries, less sun, less heat, less moisture, very dry. How long, how fast it will biodegrade? It's a fair question. I remember when I was in the US and Europe, I can leave my French fries or my cakes or my whatever outside in my apartment for a long time, many days, and they're okay. And you try to do that, uh, Rafael, in Singapore or Indonesia with such humid conditions, right? Your your food, your cake will spoil immediately. So <laughs> the French fries don't yeah. last very long in our house anyway, to be honest. But the, <laughs> but I do yeah, that, I do agree. That one, yeah, that one is a bad example. That's different kind. <laughs> but the fresh food, right? Uh, Indonesia, ASEAN is a big giant composting machines already. So some technology, our technology, Oxim works very very well in tropical tropical weather, tropical countries, uh, and less so in four-season countries, which we totally understand. So that that's the reason. And of course, their, their objection, the third one is, yeah, that transitory stage where you oxidize it, 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 it fragments, physically fragments to microplastics, but molecularly and chemically biodegrades, actually. Uh, so we speed up the entire biodegradation at different levels, the physical, chemical, and molecular. And it works much better in tropical countries than four seasons. 
so they're okay. So the conversation is like now, now Oxium. Uh, but we like your your nature loop. We like your uh, compostable uh, plastic and uh, bioplastic, especially so our nature loop. I didn't mention this. It's got the impact to the positive impact to the farmers, right? Uh-huh. Indonesian farmers. We can we uh, we can source it from their farmer co-ops and stuff. So not only is environmentally uh, friendly, but it's also uh, got social impact at the tail end, which is really exciting for us as a social enterprise. Completely. So that's why the, the, the differences. Now, how is it working in ASEAN? So Oxium, it works so much better in ASEAN and works for a lot of the stuff, even the multi-layer packaging, uh, even all those, those things, uh, 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 the bread packaging, a lot of the, the packaging that are too uneconomical to be recycled, too cheap, too dirty, to contaminate, and it's meant to be gone to landfill. We can make the landfill to, to be a big giant composting machine also. It will biodegrade. And if we close the landfill uh, properly, we can mine it through pipes and mine the CO2 and the methane. So it's really effective and affordable way to actually biodegrade all these uneconomical materials. That can happen in Indonesia, can happen in Philippines, in Malaysia, in many different places. Singapore is less so because Singapore's got incinerator as the tail end and they just throw the ash uh, to the landfill in Singapore, which is understand. Uh, Singapore land is so scarce, uh, you better use it for commercial or <laughs> residential, right? You don't want to create landfills in Singapore too many. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but the rest of us, uh, we can afford landfill because the Singapore system is so, so expensive compared to developing countries. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really hoping these kinds of solutions that you're creating and, and other innovators and, and founders such as yourself, Tommy, start to take a kind of meaningful, meaningful market share in, in in our everyday purchases or, or products that we're seeing on the shelves throughout Asia and globally so that we can really start to address plastic waste a bit more holistically and a bit more quickly because the appetite's only increasing. Of course, everyone's coming into middle classes in Southeast Asia and, and, and they deserve to buy the same stuff that we've already had access to. And it's just been really positive thing, I think, if we can make a dent on this problem over, over the next decade. How can um, listeners um, or partners contact you and what's uh, a good introduction for you Tommy? Oh wow, thank you so much and your wish is is our wish as well let's get together and work together on this stuff, it's a it's really urgent urgent and important uh, topic. We, we are always looking for uh, partners uh, partners on all fronts, partners to implement this together, to measure this together, uh, partner to develop uh, solutions together, the downstream solutions, yeah, we have the upstream technologies. Uh, we are not well-versed in some of the application segments for car parts, for uh, many uh, baby chairs, whatever, uh, other stuff. But it's a coming industry. It's an exciting uh, new space, new world. So uh, we can make it uh, worthwhile from green uh, story perspective, as well as from uh, commercial and brand differentiation perspective. So we're happy to do uh, to explore with many, many partners uh, from many parts of the world. It is a global problem, uh, Rafael. Some of the waste that are in ocean this week in Indonesia, by next week, it will probably be somewhere in East uh, East Asia, you know, and we will be receiving some waste from different parts of the, the, the planet also. We share one global oceans. So we are open to work together. Current Green Hope supporters are some of the major uh, Indonesian uh, conglomerate, as well as uh, a lot more investors uh, from internationals as well, from Japan from Singapore. So we're very happy to expand our supporter base uh, really for to really get more uh, resources together to be able to implement it together in as many uh, places where it makes sense.
sense, especially because our technology is a portfolio style, right? Uh, some technology is better for uh, developed countries, some technologies for developing countries. So uh, we are looking for all those uh, partners. They can approach us from, from our uh, website, uh, www.greenhope.co. Uh, co, um, if we can do this together and it's uh, there, no single entity can do this alone. Yeah, it's exciting journey. And with the social enterprise model, it uh, we want to make sure that it's a, a very rewarding also journey for all of us from the impact perspective, from, uh, from commercial scalability perspective and everything too. Tommy, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface, but um, thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure and good luck to Green Hope. And I look forward to tracking Thank you so much, Rafael. And please continue to do the good work you're doing here, uh, highlighting all the, the, the really uh, important stories that, uh, that we all can do together. Thank you so much, Rafael, for your work. 